You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. John 5, verses 1 to 16. The healing at the pool on the Sabbath. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem, by the Sheep Gate, a pool, in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool. When the water is stirred up and while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, get up, take your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus before he was doing because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. This is the word of the Lord. Well, hello. Uh, if you've met me before, my name's Coy. I'm the associate pastor here. So good to see you all. It's a lovely Sunday morning. I want to start off with a question. What is your favorite crime drama series? Mine was a CSI Miami. Does anyone know that here? Yeah, yeah. CSI Miami, crime scene investigation. That's right. Some of your Zachary knows at the back what I'm about to do because why I love that show so much was not only was it in the sunny beaches of Miami, like all the cases were there, it's nice vibes, very orange glow on the TV. But what I loved was that every single episode, it would always start with a very catchy intro from the main detective himself, Horatio, who would always drop a really, really lame one-liner just before it went into the theme song. So straight away, it would be scenes like Horatio, like looks like someone died here while trying to catch some sun. And then he'd put on his sunglasses really slowly and it would be like, well, it looks like someone caught her and then we'll go to the theme song it was just the worst show you can get i pretty much would stop watching the show from the intro but crime scene investigation miami watch it go to youtube and actually search horatio one-liners and you can sit there for 30 minutes and just watch his one-liners it's actually quite great so we're in week three of our series in the seven on the seven signs of jesus the signs and wonders we see from jesus christ in the gospel of john and this week's narrative is quite an, a unique one compared to the others because while we see what while we see what is actually a huge miracle from Jesus healing a man who couldn't walk the sign itself is somewhat of a footnote in the overall intention of the narrative 
Because what we have here in chapter 5 of John's Gospel is something more akin to a crime drama episode where the healing of a lame man is depicted as an alleged crime, which then results in a bit of an investigation that eventually leads to a trial. And isn't it wild to think of a story of a man literally unable to walk, being healed, and unable to walk would be overshadowed by a larger story here. But I think that shouldn't surprise us too much because if you were here with us last week, we looked at the second sign of Jesus where he healed a royal official's son. And in that story, it was emphasized that the signs weren't the focal point of the narrative, but it was the one doing the signs. The signs are meant to point our eyes to Jesus. And so today's passage is just the same. We have another healing miracle, but this time the miracle itself is more significant in how it advances the bigger picture, how it affects the rest of the story. And in this big drama, we'll see three different parties. I suggest we see three different parties that are meaningful to this story. One, a people in need. Two, a group on a mission. And three, a man on trial. And so as we begin looking at this passage, what we first see is a people in need. Look at verse 2 to 5. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate in a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. So essentially here was this pool where plenty of sick and those who were disabled would often gather, but there was a reason for their gathering here because in those days this pool was thought to have healing powers. You know, that as theologian Colin Cruz says, the belief was that only the first person into the waters after they were stirred would be healed. You know, in fact, in some manuscripts of, of scripture, there was an extra text added, an extra verse, verse four, which said the invalids were waiting for the moving of the water. And then an angel of the Lord would go down and stir the water that whoever was the first one in would be healed of whatever disease they had. You might even see it in your Bibles as like a footnote. But it was taken out in, as most scholars would agree, that it didn't appear in any of the earliest and most accurate manuscripts of the Gospel of John. But what scholars do agree with, though, is that these people were indeed there at the pool for this reason, to hopefully be healed. So this is why there was such a gathering of sick people here. They were all hoping that they could be that first one in the pool for that healing. Now, we don't actually know if this was actually true. Like in our day, you know, day and age stories and legends can be heard from the grapevine uh, and, and the masses will believe it, even if they're not true. And so it could have been like that then too. Or it could have been just as a few transcripts describe that it was actually God's doing, that this pool actually did do this. But we simply can't be sure which it was. But we can be sure that this pool brought the sick and diseased and ill around hoping to experience this healing. And it really paints for us this clear picture that, that people want to be healed, that in those days, just like ours, these people were in need, great need. And what they wanted and what they needed most was to be healthy again, to be sick, pain, disease-free, desperate and wanting nothing else but to be rid of whatever ails them. And so, so it was for this paralytic in the story, just the same, who had been disabled for 38 years, likely most of his life, he would have lived in an extremely hard, uh, extremely hard time around then because he would have been shunned, excluded, despised by his community for, uh, for being disabled. So it's no wonder that this man was sitting by the pool with the others, waiting, hoping to be the first one 
to hopefully be healed. But this day would be so different for this paralytic who's waiting by the pool before he is met by none other than the Jesus who asks him the question, do you want to be healed? Now, recently I watched a clip from a legendary ice hockey player, Wayne Gretzky, uh, who shared that there was a time that after he had retired where he brought his young son to this place uh, where the kids would line up and they'd hit five hockey pucks into the goal. It's kind of like those fun interactive stalls that you'd find at shopping centers that kids can kind of join in and just have a bit of fun. And he shared about how after his nine-year-old son finished, uh, his son asked his dad, do you want to have a go, dad? And he's, he's like, sure. And Wayne missed one of his shots. And so the teenage kid, who is there working the stalls, goes up to Wayne and says, hey, mate, if you just hold the stick a bit lower, you know, you'll be able to hit this into the goal correctly. This kid had no idea that he was speaking to the greatest hockey player in all of history, all right? Unlike the royal official from the last week, this paralytic had not heard of Jesus at all because as Jesus asked him, do you want to be healed? He thinks Jesus is asking him if he needs help into the pool not knowing that he's actually speaking to somebody who had recently turned water into wine, that recently he had healed a royal official son, as we heard last week. He didn't need Jesus to help him into the pool because before anyone could go in to experience healing, but he was talking to the healer himself, the son of God. And so even in the paralytic's obliviousness, or some may even say ignorance, Jesus shows that same merciful and compassionate nature we saw last week in the healing of the, the royal official's son. And Jesus heals this one man completely out of his grace. Jesus says to him, get up, take your bed and walk. And he did exactly that. A man who hadn't been able to stand his whole life, suddenly able to walk by the mere words of Jesus Christ. That's simply amazing. But notice something that is not picked up in John's gospel here. That after that man, he's healed. There was no thankfulness, no gratitude, no changed heart even, like the royal official and his entire family last week in the passage that said that they all believed after they witnessed the miracle. It simply says the man got up, took his bed and walked away. He got what he wanted, what he needed. And that was that. He isn't exactly described in the most positive light, is he? But he was, it almost sounds like sort of ungrateful, grumpy, selfish even. You know, pastor and author D.A. Carson describes him like this. John's death portrait of the invalid throughout this chapter paints him far more dour hues in terms of initiative, quick-wittedness, eager faith, and a questing mind. This invalid is the painful opposite of everything that char- characterizes the wonderful character in John chapter 9. And this negative portrait is affirmed as we keep reading the passage because later on we see that he didn't even bother to find out who healed him. A few verses down, he's questioned by a Jewish authorities who we'll take a look a little later in the sermon about who those guys are, but, but he's questioned by these authorities and he has no clue who healed him. And then even worse, towards the end of our passage, he meets Jesus again, the paralytic. This time he, he knows Jesus' identity and then he goes and dobs in Jesus to the authorities. Here was a man, one of the many, many people in need, having that need met and not caring for much else after that, which does say a lot about the human condition, that for a lot of people, what they think they need, they actually don't. But what they actually need is something so much more. 
And what is that exactly? Look at what Jesus says to the same paralytic later when they meet for a second time. In verse 14, Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The paralytic seemed satisfied with what he had received, you know, and that's understandable. He has healed of he was healed of what has affected his life in, in almost every aspect. So of course he'd be joyous to go on in life with this newfound bill of health, you know, able to now walk and do and experience things that he's never done before. But while he may have been totally satisfied, Jesus wasn't. Jesus purposefully sought after this once paralytic again dipping away from the crowd and finding him at the temple because he wanted to tell him of something more important than a healed body. That as he says, you are well, sin no more, that nothing nothing worse may happen to you. We have to see that Jesus desired more for this paralytic. That in Jesus healing him, it was a sign pointing to an even greater healing. One not of health, but one of sin that this paralytic was once physically sick. But what he has to realize is that he was spiritually sick. And Jesus healed him physically so that he would see the need to be healed spiritually. That his sickness of sin was what really needed to be dealt with. That was the main thing that Jesus was after for this paralytic. Says pastor and author John Piper says, the issue is holiness mainly, not health. I've healed you to make you holy. It's about holiness because Jesus tells him to stop sinning. It's like Jesus is saying, the purpose of me healing your body was that you would see the need for the healing of your soul. Jesus gave this to him, a free gift. The paralytic didn't find Jesus or seek him. Jesus came to him first. The man didn't earn it, didn't work for it. He wasn't good enough or deserving of it. And yet Jesus chose him freely. Jesus healed him. And so now Jesus, by saying, see, you are well, sin no more. He's saying to go live in that healing power. Let this gift of healing, this gift of my free grace to you be what spurs you on into how you live, spurs you on into living in holiness, spurs you on into living in righteousness. So do you see the big picture of this sign here? So the author John wants us readers to see that the sign was pointing to something greater. That Jesus healed this man physically out of his grace to demonstrate what he would eventually do spiritually out of his grace. That Jesus was here to heal souls. To heal the sickness of sin. As one writer says in in Jesus demonstrating this miracle to this paralytic, it tells him, it tells him and the world that I conquer sickness to show you I want to conquer sin. And that's the gospel message that Jesus came here to conquer sin. Romans 6.23, you know, for, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Because the problem with sin is that it demands a consequence. Sin goes against the righteousness of God, the creator of all things who is perfect and holy and righteous. And 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 God being a just God demands judgment from such disobedience. He would have to if he is a just God. And so Jesus warns the paralytic of that, that if he continues on in sin, that if he turns away, 
if he perhaps mocks this gift that's been given to him, if he idolizes his newfound health, if he embraces sin as his way of life, something worse than the immense struggles of being a paralytic in the world for 38 years will happen to him. What Jesus means by this is the judgment to come. Where as he just says a few verses down in verse 28 and 29 of chapter 5, Jesus says, An hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Jesus is warning the once paralytic that now that he's been healed physically, if he takes no note of his spiritual health, if he doesn't surrender to the Lord and live in holiness, continues to live in sin, continues to do evil, the sick soul will lead him to death. Not a physical death, but a spiritual one. See, through this miracle, Jesus reminds us that he heals in more ways than one. That whatever need in this world that we may feel we have, you know, be it a clean bill of health, be a roof over our heads, be a a safe place for our families, be three plates of food on our table each day. None of this compares to realizing our actual greatest need on this earth, which is to be healed of our sin, which is what Jesus did, which which is what Jesus came down here to do, to not only heal us, not only save us from our sins, but to give us new life, growing in holiness, So the question is, do you see this need? Now, we can't be sure if the paralytic did. We don't know what fully happens to him after he leaves Jesus. But what we do know is he does something that would impact the rest of the gospel narrative. You know, Because as it says in verse 15, the healed man, after being told to sin no more from Jesus, would then leave and go back to these Jewish authorities who had questioned him earlier about who had healed him. But this time he identifies Jesus to these authorities, essentially dobbing in Jesus into these people. But why was it dobbing in when something so good happened? When a miracle changed a man's life, what could be so wrong about this? Well, as verse 16 tells us, it was because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. So my second point, and the next party of people we see from our crime, dra- crime drama is a group of on a mission. Follow me, verse 10. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is this man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? In our passage, you know, after the paralytic had been healed and could walk and, and Jesus tells him to get up and take his bed and, and, and go, the once paralytic does exactly that, walking through the, the streets with this, his newfound ability. But what seemed like a, a joyous experience was quickly halted as he was stopped by these, these men, these Jewish authorities who were likely walking the streets uh, while he was walking the streets with great elation, sorry. And they pull him up for uh, taking up his bed on the Sabbath. Because in the Old Testament, according to uh, Jewish law, it was forbidden to work on the Sabbath. With Jerusalem being a place of great religious zeal, uh, keeping up with Jewish law was vital in those days. You know, as scholar Gary M. Burge says, uh, that the Jews protected the Sabbath and held it aloft as a vital symbol of Jewish culture and religion. So it was very important. So what that meant is that people weren't supposed to carry out one's occupation on the Sabbath. 
you know, and in Jeremiah chapter 17, we see that this work included the bearing of loads on the Sabbath. And Jewish scholars in those days attempting to ensure that this Sabbath was kept uh, had defined 39 types of work forbidden on the Sabbath. And one of them included taking out anything from one domain to another. So this is what the healed paralytic was guilty of, carrying around his mat from one place to another, an act that the Jewish leaders would deem as breaking the the rabbinic law. Which to be fair to these Jewish authorities, everyone in those days kept the, the Sabbath holy and so they were right in accusing the paralytic. But this isn't what stands out from their, from the Jewish authorities' response. But the fact that after they pull up the paralytic for breaking the law, the paralytic responds to them, the man who hewed me told me to do this. And instead of rejoicing after hearing a man had been healed or joyously trying to find the man who healed him, instead of you know responding in, in jubilation and being happy and hopeful, they're like, man, who is this guy? Let's get him. Like, who's this guy that healed you? We've got to get this man. These authorities were meant to be the most upstanding religious faithful folk in the town. And right in front of them was evidence of a miracle. And yet they're more concerned about which law was broken. Not the joy of a man who had been healed. Not excited by the prospect of encountering a healer who has shown a sign that is only reserved to God. It says a lot about the Jewish authorities in Jesus' day. They were a group who were strict, legalistic, unempathetic, and a group where after this event were on a mission. As it says in verse 15 and 16, the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. See, we see in the overall narrative of the Gospel of John that it's from here that the opponents of Jesus started to come onto the scene. The the, the Pharisees, the religious authorities, these were the main opponents of Jesus as we see all throughout the Gospels, whose mission was to deliberately persecute Jesus. From this passage, we see it's here that their hostility begins to grow. Here were a group who were adamant on following the law to a T, but in a way that was legalistic and outward rather than inward. And we see this so clearly throughout all the Gospels, you know, with Jesus so often calling these guys out for their hypocritical ways and superficial faith. Look what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and are all uncleanliness. See, Jesus' enemies don't take into account God's extraordinary work and only think about the superficial outworkings of the law. So it's no wonder that Jesus would describe them as whitewashed tombs who think they are alive but are in fact dead, who were blind to who and what was in front of them. The Pharisees and the opponents of Jesus were just the same as the invalids. They too were in need. The difference is they just didn't see it because without even knowing They were just as sick as those that were sitting around the pool. Spiritually, they were in need of true salvation. In fact, these religious authorities, 
they were in even in an even more worrying and serious predicament because these religious authorities likely likely thought that they were well thought that they weren't sick that they were on that, that they had strong faith that they were spiritually healthy yet they had no idea that in fact they were spiritually dead they weren't a people in need because they thought they had all that they need which couldn't be further from the truth and this is pretty scary to think about you know, that those seemed the most religious folk were in fact in the most danger it reminds me of what my friend in partial ministry once said to me that he imagines uh, imagine a paddock right and a, a fence running right through the middle of the paddock. And on one side, you picture it's clearly like bad. You know, it's like thunderstorm. It's all black, dark, all over there. It's just the sinful side. And on the other side, it's all bright, you know, angelic music playing. It's nice and bright, like sunlight's there. And he said, in his many years of partial ministry experience, he found that those in the most danger aren't the ones on the sinful side of the paddock, but the ones on the fence. Because the ones on the sinful dark side, they have that chance to really see, man, I am really broken. Like I am need I am, I am in need of something. Something is clearly wrong here, and I need saving. But the ones on the fence are the ones in most danger, because they think they're fine. They think that they're all good. And so there's something here to say for us. Why each week we hear about the need to come daily to God, in prayer, in His Word, to daily rely, trust, surrender. To Jesus, it's because our faith is not an outward religion. It's not just about what people see, ticking boxes on a checklist, not breaking commands, but it's about something the Jews could not see at the time. It's about giving our lives to Jesus Christ, about trusting in Him each day, surrendering all that we do, say, think, feel to Him daily, following Jesus. Matthew 16, as Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. See, the Jewish authorities in our story could not grasp that. They were too preoccupied with, with finding, out Jesus, finding Jesus to call him out, to persecute him, and even worse, eventually went on a mission to have him killed. To think of a group of people wanting a man killed because he healed someone that, uh, that, and had that person walk the streets on the Sabbath, that sounds quite extreme, doesn't it? But it wasn't just the Sabbath that had the Jews, these Jewish authorities, riled up. But something else that Jesus was doing, which caused them to want him completely gone. Verse 18, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. This is what triggered the Jewish authorities most, that Jesus was calling himself God, which is my final point, that here in our story, we now see the last party, the most significant one. We see a man on trial. See, as Jesus is confronted by the authorities, Jesus answers to them saying, my father is working until now and I am working. This is Jesus' defense to their claims of him breaking the Sabbath. And while a simple sentence response by Jesus is actually a response packed with great meaning. 
because by Jesus saying this, first it means that he didn't break the law as this is his as this is divine work. The Jews were right to keep the law, but Jesus saying that God the Father is working as he is working means that he is doing God's work, not man's work, which would normally cease as commanded. So as pastor and author John Calvin says, Jesus insists that the holy rest which is commanded in the law of Moses is not broken when God's work is done. If giving thanks to God and preaching God's glory are to be included among God's deeds, the Sabbath is not broken when hands and feet testify to God's grace. And by Jesus attesting to God, he's saying that whether he breaks the Sabbath or not, God works continuously. Even in creation, while God rested on the seventh day, he sustained the universe and all that was in it, enjoying his wonderful creation. But the biggest thing to take away from this, what would have got the attention of the Jews most, was that in order for this self-defense to be valid, it means that the same factors that apply to God must also apply to this Jesus that Jesus is above the law, is either above the law given to people or that he operates within the law because the whole universe is his. Meaning that Jesus, in his response, was putting himself equal with God. That the healthy body in which he restored to the paralytic was an example of his divine power as somebody equal with God. And so he could do that on the Sabbath without breaking it. What we see from Jesus, what we see Jesus assert to the Jewish authorities in the rest of this chapter, the rest of chapter 5, is that he is the Son of God and he acts in the same way as the Father. That as uh, D.A. Carson says, Jesus insists that whatever factors justify God's continuous work from creation on also justify his. And it's with this extremely weighty claim from Jesus, he essentially put on trial from here on out by his opponents. His opponents see Jesus' words as, as blasphemy. That a man will call himself equal to the God that they worship. And when you think about it, putting yourselves in their shoes, that is quite natural and, and an understanding response to have, right? For a man to say he's above the law is already a huge deal to most. But that it's God's law that has added incentive, that this healer is claiming to be equal to God, to be the son of God. That, that is grounds to be angry, fuming if you didn't believe it, you know, a disrespect to the Jewish faith, a complete dishonouring of all that they had known. But what follows in chapter 5 is Jesus unpacking this for them with two things that stand out. Firstly, that the son can't and does not go his own way but stays in perfect step with the Father. Verse 19, So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. See, Jesus doesn't say that he only does what, what, uh, what the Father, what some of what the Father does. He doesn't say that he, uh, that, that he requests from the Father what to do. But whatever the Father does, Jesus does. The Jews became hostile to him because he's claiming to be equal with God, talking as if if God acts, so too Jesus acts. That there's some sort of strong union or connection between these two. That these are one of those, these are one of those vital verses from Jesus that we see in the whole Bible where he himself declares that he is God, that he is divine, not just a prophet sent to do God's bidding, not just a good man, but they are in union together as one. So if you're exploring Christianity today, 
and perhaps have questions. One thing that you can be sure to disregard was that Jesus ever claimed to be a mere prophet or a good person. But in his ministry, he claims to be the son of God, equal with the father. In John chapter 10, 10 verse 30, he says, I and the father are one. So the man is put on trial. Jesus is put on trial for such outlandish accusations, according to these Jews, that, that this is complete blasphemy and deserves due punishment, deserves death, that Jesus ought to be judged for such claims. But the second thing that stands out with Jesus unpacking this uh, to, to the, all the Jewish leader, to the Jewish leaders is what he says in verse 22. Jesus says, For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honour the Son just as they honour the Father. Whoever does not honour the Son does not honour the Father who sent him. And this stands out because on first read, it sounds a little contradicting of what Jesus had just said. If Jesus does whatever the Father does and is in step with him, why does it say that the Father judges no one but has given all judgment to the Son? It sounds like one is acting while the other one is not. But when Jesus says that the, the, the Father judges no one, he isn't meaning that God has no part in judging people because God's word, the Bible is quite strong on God being the ultimate judge of all people. You know, Psalms chapter 75 says, but it is God who executes judgment. But what Jesus means here when he says the Father judges no one, he's meaning the Father judges no one on his own. Like the Father doesn't go off independently. God the Father doesn't go off independently doing his own thing without any reference to the Son and then judge the world. But what's so significant here is that Jesus is making the point that the key person when it comes to judgment is him, is the son. He's in the front line of it all. He is the chief part. Judgment rests on the son. And so what does that mean? Whoever does not honour the son does not honour the father who sent him. Judgment from God is determined by the historical and biblical person of Jesus Christ. See, earlier this year, my wife Lena met a woman at our local Coles who randomly just started talking to my wife. And the convo led to Lena saying uh, that she actually goes to church. And the other woman said, hey, I go to church too. And Lena's like, oh yeah, which one? And she's like, the Mormon church. And I remember when Lena was retelling me the story, we were both like, ah, man, so close, you know, and yet so far. Because the Mormon, Mormon church believe in Jesus, but not in the way that the Bible tells us. For instance, seeing him as seeing Jesus as a spiritual child of a heavenly father and heavenly mother Mary. They believe in a historical Jesus, but not the biblical one. And this is just one of the many religions who don't honor the true Jesus. What's encouraging is Lena has met up with her again and uh, is sharing the gospel with her and hoping that she'll meet up with her again even more. But in our passage, what Jesus is saying here is what people make of him is what determines their fate. I'll say that again. In our passage, what Jesus is saying here is what people make of him, what people make of Jesus is what determines your fate, what decides their final judgment. That whoever honours or dishonours, whoever believes or rejects Jesus' words, that he is the Son of God, God incarnate, fully man, fully God, the Saviour of the world, here to save the world of its sickness 
will be judged accordingly. As the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he's done in the body, whether good or evil. See, this is what Jesus meant when he says all judgment is given to the Son. What happens to every person here, every human in history, every soul rests on what we make of Jesus Christ. This is what sets Christianity apart from everyone else. As author and pastor John Piper says, if you want to know if someone in another religion or no religion honours God, as in has a true worshipful relationship with God, the test that you use to know this is, do they honour Jesus for who he really is? As the divine son of God, the Messiah, the crucified risen saviour of the world, the Lord of the universe and the judge of all human beings. See, this would have been quite a bombshell to hear from these Jewish authorities. The man had essentially been put on trial. This Jesus had, the man that they had essentially put on trial, sorry, has now completely flipped it around where it seems like now they are on trial. Like they started out by asking Jesus, who are you, who are you saying you are? What is your defense? And now Jesus is saying to them, if you reject me, you reject God. If you follow God, then you follow me. What is your verdict? Now, as we read the rest of the gospel, we'd see the Jewish authorities' verdict. It's very clear. It's clear that they were guilty. They did not believe. But what's significant from this is that everyone, everyone who reads this account of Jesus' sign in this gospel is in the same position. We are now put on trial because like the paralytic who was healed who was healed we too can be like him and miss the point thinking that our greatest needs are here on earth not seeing our deep sickness of being a fallen sinner rejecting god rejecting our deep need to honor jesus the son of god but it's not just unbelievers who are on trial but we as christians too because we too can be like the jewish authorities claiming to follow God, but we distort our faith with misinterpretations and checking off religious regulations, thinking our faith is just acting, doing, being good. But inwardly, there is no genuine faith. Believing and following more of a faith system rather than believing in a saviour, Jesus, the Son of God. See, like the lame man and the Jewish authorities, all of us, were unable to walk with God. We could not reach out for healing. We would have been those ones at the pool, hoping for some pool to be the one make, giving us the miracle. We could not get up on our own strength to find this healer. We were utterly lame before God. Romans 3 verse 10 says, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God. But our great hope to be made well only comes from the saving grace of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, where judgment rests on Him. See, throughout our entire passage, notice that Jesus intentionally told the paralytic to walk and head into the public streets. Notice that while the accusations came at Him from his opponents, 
Jesus let it stand. You know, he didn't cut them off. He didn't run off or he didn't, he didn't avoid these opponents. But he intentionally planned this to happen as it was all part of his divine will. Letting them accuse him, responding with uh, his own challenge to all who hear and read his words, letting his enemies begin uh, their mission to have his have him killed, plot plot a way to get him killed. Jesus this did this because this was his divine mission. He came here to seek and save the lost, to pay the price for sinners by dying by the hands of sinners on the cross that sinners may be healed of our sickness, cleansed and made righteous by the very Son of God. Only the Son of God could pay such a price to be the perfect sacrifice for our sin. Romans 5, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so we're left with the question, What's your verdict? Do you honour Jesus as the Son of God? Do you see your deepest need that we need a Saviour to heal us from our sickness of sin? Do you believe that Jesus is who he says he is and that he came to do what he promised to do? That as Jesus says in verse 24 of our chapter, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Jesus healing the paralytic, he has shown us a foretaste of his resurrection power. That on his ministry on earth, Jesus had the power to heal. But when he returns, as promised in the Bible, we will see his healing power in full where he will heal all his people completely, resurrecting us to new life with him forever. See, the purpose of Jesus' sign here was to call us to faith, to call us to believe in him, to follow him, to live for him. As one writer says, he told the paralytic he did heal who had not even believed on him to wake up. Jesus was pursuing him. Jesus is pursuing you. So the question for us is the same question Jesus asked the paralytic. Do you want to be made well? Let's pray together. Our good and gracious God, we thank you that you are the healer of the world, that in the ministry of Jesus we see a foretaste of that great healing to come. That for those who believe and follow you, we need not fear the final judgment, but we can rest assured in the the saving grace of Jesus who gives us eternal life. Help us, Lord, each day to see our deep need, that we are sinners who need a saviour. Help us, Lord, not be like the religious authorities who see faith as a bunch of checklists, but let us surrender our lives to you in joy of what you have already done for us. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for Jesus. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.